Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's working on helping a young person understand their behavior and how they have agency in the world. They can do things. They can make things happen. They can push and pull and poke and make things happen. And when they make things happen, they get to choose whether that's something they want to continue to do. And over time, we will build their strengths and their ability to act in the world. And that will eventually become what they care about and what we call value. That was Dr. Louise Hayes, and you are listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. what psychologists chat about over coffee? We are three clinical psychologists who love to discuss the best ideas from psychology. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. And from coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. In this podcast, we explore the psychological principles that we use in our clinical work. And we bring you ideas from psychology that can help you flourish in your work, parenting, relationships, and health. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. Hi, Debbie. I know that both of us have talked a lot about self-care and how to carve out time to care for ourselves when life is busy. And that is why... I have joined up with Goodland Organics Coffee Farm to design this day-long retreat, April 6th in Santa Barbara, at the foothills of actually Goleta. And what it is, is a retreat that I actually would kind of design for myself. You arrive to organic specialty coffee that's grown and produced on the farm. There's going to be fresh pressed juices. We're going to have a beautiful yoga session, open air yoga with um, views of the farm. And then I'm going to lead you in some... Uh, act workshops and self-compassion workshops. We're going to have a plant-based lunch and we're going to close the whole day with some sound healing with crystal bowls and a beautiful harvest. It's going to be amazing. And it's really a chance for you to cut out some time for yourself to restore in nature. So go ahead and check it out on my website at drdianahill.com and it's filling up fast. So make sure you um, reserve a space today. It sounds wonderful. Diana, even hearing about it makes me... (sighs) Just imagining it. So being there will be even better. Yes. Well, today we are happy to bring you an episode that is really going to be a game changer for anyone who has any kind of relationship with an adolescent or adolescent-to-be. This is an interview with Dr. Louise Hayes, who has a framework that can be used to effectively work with adolescents and help navigate them effectively through this this time of life that, that certainly has its challenges and its ups and downs. And Dr. Hayes does such a good job at creating this model that's designed to actually really help our adolescents not just get through it, but really thrive and tackle some of the important developmental tasks of being an adolescent moving into adulthood. Her model is great because it it gives you a sense of direction as an adult. What are some of the things that I could be focusing on with uh, either my child or my client in terms of helping them develop their ability to discover the world and learn from the world, ability to look at their own thinking and what kind of advisor do they want to have in their head, and then also what their values are. And I I really found it super helpful in thinking about my clinical work, but also in thinking about my kids as going to be future adolescents. And when I, you know, when I think about children, really what's most helpful is for you to be a little bit ahead of the game and know what's coming up. So if you think about pregnancy, it's a good idea for you to have uh, your nutrition and your exercise in place before you become pregnant, because you're not going to want to do it when you're pregnant. (laughs) And when you, you know, before you have, when you're pregnant, that's when you should be thinking about what you're going to do when you have this newborn, because you're not going to be reading any books when you have a newborn. And I think that the same is true for adolescents. This is the time, at least for me to start thinking about how I want to be developing a relationship with my kids so that 
when they move into adolescence, that can really be a cornerstone of our, you know, healthy development and, and then moving forward. Yeah, I agree. I found it helpful to even start thinking now about how to set the stage for, for the adolescent period, even though that's a few years ahead for us too. Right. I love how Kelly Wilson talks about problem solving people versus uh, thinking of them as sunsets. And I think that that model fits so perfectly with adolescence because so many times we think about them as problems to be solved. And it's been fed to us from the media that adolescents are problems to be solved. But really, if we look at them as sunsets that are leaving our house soon, and at this also so vibrant, so bright, and so many, so much diversity of experience that they that they offer us, I think that's what Louise Hayes really offers us in this in this um, conversation is that she really sees adolescence as sunsets. She does, and it makes you realize it is a phase that goes by quickly. It may not seem like it when you're in the thick of it, but it will pass. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to look back at it and, you know, you'll move forward in life and to, to have some appreciation for it actually while it's happening can, can be difficult. And it's, it's a lovely way to look at it. Yeah. And share this one with your friends, because this is something that every parent needs to hear. Dr. Louise Hayes is a clinical psychologist who is well known for her work using acceptance and commitment therapy with young people in schools and clinical settings. She is currently the president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. She is an author, international speaker, senior fellow with the University of Melbourne and Origin Youth Health, and a peer-reviewed acceptance and commitment therapy trainer. She is co-author of the best-selling book, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life for Teenagers, A Guide to Living an Extraordinary Life, and the newly released book, The Thriving Adolescent, Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy and Positive Psychology to Help Teens Manage Emotions, Achieve Goals, and Build Connections. Together with Joseph Cherokee, she conducts research and treatment development. Her latest work is DNAV, a treatment model for young people. Louise is an active humanitarian taking mental health professionals into the Himalayas to develop their mindfulness skills and raising funds for poor children in remote Nepal. For more information about Louise, go to www.louisehays.com.au, where you can find information about her workshops and upcoming trainings. We have linked to her books and webpage on the show notes for this episode. Louise, welcome to Psychologists Off the Clock. Hi, Debbie. Thanks for having me. Well, we're, we're speaking from the U.S. to Australia. It's summer and Tuesday morning there. It's, there's snow yeah. on the ground and it's Monday afternoon here. It's so the, the wonders of technology. <laughs> I know. It's amazing. It's yeah. uh, more than 100 degrees in your scale here today and you've got snow on the ground. And snow. Yeah, it's quite, quite funny. Um, so today we're going to be talking about your approach to working with adolescents and helping them build psychological flexibility or, as you call it, flexible strength. From yes, your model. Flex- flexible strength. Flexible strength. And help them live a values-driven life. And I, I just want to express some appreciation before we start for your work and what you've added to the field. I think as a clinician, I love that you've really created a model that can be used to help do some really effective work with young people. And also as a parent, my kids aren't quite adolescents yet, but I find that your your approach is really helpful, I think, even for younger people. Oh, and thank you, Debbie. And to think of ways to kind of simplify some of these concepts and work effectively um, in ways that might be a little different from how we typically might work with an adult. Well, thank you. Uh, my colleague Joseph and I have been working for um, 10 years together on this, and I have been working all my career on adolescence so, um, and children too. And so we're really excited when people say it's useful. Yeah. Well, speaking of adolescence, I think it's really interesting to look at adolescence as a developmental stage and to think of that as a very specific time in life where there's a lot happening cognitively, biologically, socially. In your opinion, since you're this is your area and you've been in this field doing this work for a while, what are some of the unique aspects of adolescence as a developmental stage that's just sort of part of being an adolescent? Sure. Um, well, of course, there's the biological parts that that are obvious to all of us, you know, our bodies changing and our brains changing. Um, 
And so I think you've you've um, talked about it already as biological, but there's also the social and psychological aspects. Um, most of us can remember, uh, or, or, or a lot of us can remember, having this uh, body that was so different all of the time <laughs> and changing all of the time. Um, and so that's the part that we can see that's the most obvious, that um, there's a very rapid growth and change. But it's the parts we can't see that I think are the most interesting for us. You know, brain changes, changes in um, emotions that, that are all going on inside our brains, changes in thought and processing, our ability to suddenly be abstract thinkers, or not suddenly, but our ability to be abstract thinkers, um, and changes socially that are really important from a developmental perspective. Like suddenly, uh, every, everything you do is looked at through the eyes of what peers will think. I can still remember being a teenager and just being mortified that I had to go out in the presence of my mother and that people would see me with my mother at the age of 12. <laughs> and that's pretty common for people to think those things. So suddenly the peers become the most important thing. Um, and from an evolutionary perspective, there's a good reason why that happens. Uh, when you're a child, your life centres around your family and perhaps a few friends. When you're an adult, your life is out in the world um, with work and being an independent person and having a relationship and all of those adult things that we do. And the adolescent phase is that period in between where sometimes you're a child and sometimes you're acting like an adult. And you have to find out eventually over the course of adolescence, how do I be an adult? And that means lots and lots of practice at adulting um, and getting it wrong. <laughs> yeah. So there, if you think about the social and psychological things that a young person has to do and all of the things that they have to plan, just imagine this, Debbie, that I said to you, okay, you've got three years, Debbie, and from the day this podcast finishes, you have to uh, leave home, get an education, choose a career, experiment with your sexuality, become independent, and you've got three years to do it. You know, it's, a, it's a pretty dramatic change if you think about what young people have to do. We know a lots lot of, of hard, a lot of hard tasks. Well, you know, adults who are moving house and spend six months complaining about it every Monday morning at the water cooler. Um, <laughs> so if you think about the tasks that are going on psychologically and socially, it's quite remarkable. It's a remarkable time, um, really. What, what about the risk-taking? You mentioned that as one of the evolutionary, you know, adolescence, a lot of times is risk-taking as a part of it. it. Do you think in your perspective that that risk-taking part of adolescence is wired in? It is, and I can tell you why. So a lot of our work, uh, we use evolutionary science to help us understand. So there's a very big stud anthropological study that was done on 187 different cultures, um, and they looked at the key characteristics of adolescent behaviours. And the key characteristics across 187 cultures were risk-taking, love of novelty, and sensation-seeking. So we know it's not just West or East or whatever you want to say. It goes across all human cultures. But then if you look at animal studies, there are some animal studies that also show risk-taking, love of novelty and sensation-seeking happens in animals um, in the adolescent period. Um, many, many species have been shown to have an adolescent period in the animal years. So when you see something happen in animals and in humans, you know you have some kind of evolutionary process going on, right? Now, if you think about it, Debbie, why do you think um, an adolescent mouse would take risks? For what purpose would a mouse suddenly take a whole lot of risks? To get food and to, you know, move into a place that it needs to be going. Um, right, to survive. Yeah, to survive um, and to find a mate and to become an adult mouse. So they'll leave their safe little nest and go off exploring. So we know that there are biological things that risk-taking becomes far more appealing and interesting. Um, 
And it's not just biological, there's also social and psychological aspects to that too. Um, think about an eight-year-old. I don't know how old your kids are, Debbie, but think about an eight-year-old. They don't want to take risks. They let mum and dad take the risks. But a 12-year-old, 14-year-old needs to learn how to practice it. So yeah. there are. Um, so when we see it across the species, we know we have some process going on. Now, I need to say that there is a problem with the word risk. And that is that when we think, say, risk-taking, we often think things like uh, taking drugs or, um, you know, doing uh, something that is going to cause um, significant harm. We don't mean that kind of risk-taking. So there are two forms of risk. There's adaptive risk and maladaptive risk. So adaptive risk we see everywhere with young people standing up, saying what they think, speaking out, going to parties, trying all of the things that are practising adulting. Um, whereas, um, and maladaptive risk is something that we, uh, we need to help young people understand. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction. And I wonder for parents, risk, especially the maladaptive kind, but even the, the less, the more adaptive kind, it feels scary, right? I mean, even just thinking about, if you think about your own children or if you're a clinician or a teacher and you think about some of the stuff that, that these young people are out doing in the world and you just want them to be safe, um, how do we navigate that as, as adults? Well, <laughs> young risk takers. Well, you're right, Debbie. I mean, think about, think back to your own uh, adolescence and the things that you did as an adolescent. And then suddenly you're a parent and you're looking at oh. your young children thinking, oh my goodness. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, no, don't do those things I did. Right. So yeah. that's one of the that's one of the key things is you're looking at them thinking, oh my goodness, I hope they never do what I did. Um, and that's a parent's job. A parent's job is kind of the in some ways it's almost a parent's job is the opposite to the teenage job. So an adolescent's job is to go out and build their strengths by trying as many new things as they can and finding out what kind of person they're going to be. And a parent's job is to say. I need to protect you. I'll look after you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of um, they, so they're opposites, and no wonder they pull apart and 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 um, battle over these grounds. So parents' job is to protect their children. Yeah. Um, and uh, we don't always help parents understand what it means to have adolescence, and that's not a criticism of parents. But we don't talk a lot in positive ways about teenagers. Um, so if you're a parent and your job from a biological, social and psychological perspective is to protect your young, um, then you, they come to these teenage years and there are so many maladaptive risks that many parents are afraid. Um, and the media is not very kind to teenagers. And they, you know, we often hear about teenage gangs and all sorts of things that make parents feel afraid. I used to teach a class on adolescent development um, at Harvard when I was in developmental. um, My PhD program was for developmental psychology. And we talked a lot about that sort of myth of adolescence that they really get a bad rap, I think, because we have this stereotype of them. And I can't tell you how many, my, my kids are younger than that now. I can't tell you how many times people have said, Oh, the, the dreaded teenage years, just wait till they're teenagers, especially for girls, because it's so in your opinion, with so much work you've done with adolescents, do you feel like that's a fair stereotype? No, I think it's really unfair where, um, if you step back and think about this for a minute, Debbie, you're basically saying that one portion of the population is something to be worried or afraid about. Like one portion of being a human is a time of fear. That's really a cultural thing um, and uh, often perpetuated by our the information spread that it's risky and dangerous. Yeah. Most teenagers are not um, violent or to be afraid of. They certainly push the boundaries inside the home with parents, but that's their job. Our job is to work out how to manage the push and pull. And... Uh, I, I don't have daughters, I had sons so from a personal perspective. I can say that I think 
if we as parents can um, understand what our teenagers need to do, then having teenagers can be a time of just such excitement and interest Um, and it can be a wonderful experience for a teenager. You don't have to tell them, well, mostly you don't have to tell them to pick up their clothes or to, um, they'll just leave them there, or to eat or to shower. You sometimes do, but mostly they can do those things. And you begin to have conversations with them that are about things that they're interested in and the way the world is and politics and all those um, worldwide topics that they become interested in. Yeah, it's such an, I think you're right. I think that's part of what's so special about that time is they are still developing. They're not, their brains aren't the same as adults yet. And yet they're starting to be able to have these complex thoughts and to think about their future and to have opinions. So I think of, that's one of the values, I think, of looking at it from this developmental lens is to look at it as a specific stage in life with specific tasks specific things happening. And that actually, to me, is a little bit reassuring, I think, as a parent that it's not necessarily all bad. And there are some good sides. And a lot of the struggle that might happen between a parent and an adolescent in many cases is just part of the process. Yes, I I think you're right. And I, I think from a parent's perspective, it's about fear. We're all afraid of, um, for our teenagers and of the world that they're growing up in. And we're afraid they might firstly do the things that we did that we don't want them to do. And we're also afraid of the environment that they're growing up in and and whether they will be safe. So it's understandable. And parents, so I did my PhD in uh, parenting problem adolescence. And um, I say this to parents all the time when I work with parents in the clinic. The research is pretty clear. The thing that matters the most when you have teenagers is your relationship with them. Teenagers, what gets them through the hard years is a good relationship with their parents. So even if they talk to you like you don't know anything, (laughs) (laughs) which happens, um, and uh, even if they talk to you like you don't know anything um, and they look like they don't want to be around you, they actually really need a good relationship with you. They'll ask their friends about what clothes to wear, but they'll ask parents about what they should do about a bullying episode or or what they should do with their future. So if you've got a solid relationship with them, that's uh, a good thing. That's what they any, need. Yeah, and, and I think that can be a challenge during this phase when there's that simultaneous push and pull. You know, they're on the one hand, they need you, and on the other hand, they often are pushing adults away, parents away. Um, how do you suggest that parents navigate that when during those times when they don't talk to you or they push you away or they say, I can think of some horrible things I said to my mother, especially back in that era. Um, any pointers? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can all think of some horrible things that we said, um, or most of us can. Um, I think uh, um, the thing that I often say to parents when I work with them is really don't believe that your teenager doesn't need you. Even when they say they don't need you, don't believe that. They need you. Um, they need you for different things. They need you to be a solid foundation. They need to know that you're always there. They need to know that no matter how big or bad or ugly their feelings get, you're always there. And remember, in the teenage years, our emotions are up and down far more than as an adult. So there are times they will be out of control and emotional and unable to contain themselves. And they need to know that no matter what, you're there. That's a hard job. That's a really tough job. Um, in a way, when I work with parents, I often say to them, you know, your teenage job is to push as far as they can and your job is to push back in a way that's supportive. So you can't, I don't think you can really avoid the battle, if you like. Being supportive means saying to them, this is the boundary of being an adult or being a young adult and you can only push that far. I won't let you push any further because I'm here and I'm going to stop you from pushing too far. So it's kind of tricky. How do you maintain 
uh, rules and um, boundaries that support them, but also let them try risks as well. It's, it's a tricky role for a parent. It you is. can't be their you can't be their friend. You're their parent, so you can be friendly and have a good relationship, but you're their parent. Yeah, and I think a lot of it you have to kind of hold your own fear and just be solidly there through all those ups and downs. And and if they have that message, that's a pretty that's not a bad starting place. Yeah, I think you're right. Holding your fear as a parent is the hard thing. And so that's why I I say over and over to the parents that I work with, it's your relationship that matters. So what matters the most is have you got time in most days to just drive somewhere together? You know, if the battle is on, drive somewhere together. Don't make eye contact. (laughs) Turn that. Devices are uh, devices are a problem, of course, trying to get off the device so you can be together, chop the vegetables, sit on the couch and watch something that they like to watch, you know, those things. Just be in, be in it with them for their own, yeah, at their yeah. own time. They'll reach out when they need it. Well, and that, that's, that leads into another relevant conversation, which is in terms of your clinical work. So as parents, it's tricky. And as clinical work, you have created a really wonderful model for working with adolescents. And part of what you've done is translate some of what we know works well for adults, but you've turned it into something that I think can reach um, younger people better. So, well, you're, thank you for doing all that. That's, I mean, you put a lot of heart and soul and creative juices into it. But let's start by talking about why that was necessary. What do you think are some traps that perhaps clinicians could get into who work with adolescents or even teachers and parents? It, just in terms of that difference, I think sometimes we we might try to take the same approach that we would take with an adult and it might not, it might fall short. So, So why is it even necessary for you to have done what you've done? Okay, that's a great question. Well, the the model that we're talking about is DNAV, and it's an adolescent model um, for acceptance and commitment therapy. But it actually turns out to be very useful for children too, and I'll explain why. So for a number of years, um, Joe and I, Joseph and I, um, were trying to write um, acceptance and commitment therapy work for young people. Um, And you can make it work. It can, it can work quite well, if, and especially if you're a well-trained and clever clinician, you can make it work. But there are some developmental pieces that were missing when we take an adult model and try to apply it to young people. Um, some of those developmental pieces we've talked about. Um, uh, and so, so uh, let me just say in a concrete way, talking about values is something that is really common in adult therapy when we talk to adults we talk to them about what you care about and what matters to you and what you want your life to be about now if you're working with a 14 year old that's a completely different way of looking at it Um, and so we talk about values as being a creative period in the adolescence because you don't know who you want to be and you don't really know what your life will be and you're exploring and testing so it's a it's a place of exploring when it comes to thoughts As an adult, you've had many years of practising how to think and um, knowing what you think in the world. But as a teenager, this ability is just going, um, broadening and becoming stronger. And so we want to help young people know how to to use thinking as a tool. So So it's less about taking away the problems that an adult might have developed over their adult adult period and more about starting from how do we build it up in a way that's flexible. Um, So there's those things. And one of the things that happened when we started to look at the work is that many of the therapy models that are used for teenagers are adult models made simple. So we take complex adult concepts and we make the language simple. But the funny thing is that's not, what we do in any other developmental place. And so when we started to look at that, Joe and I went, okay, we need to start from the bottom. So we looked at from birth and looked at how the um, strengths and skills and behaviours of a human develop over time. And so we looked at it as a developmental trajectory. So in a way it's kind of uh, not taking adult from the top and simplifying it down so that kids understand what we're saying. It's saying how do the behaviours of humans develop and how do we work with that? 
you almost take the key developmental tasks of that phase, things like who am I, you know, identity sort of questions about what do I want out of life and things like understanding your own thoughts and emotions. Those are all part of that phase. And you've managed to add this piece that's, that's helping them in terms of their living their values and understanding their emotions and using them effectively. Exactly, Debbie. And if you if you're talking about acceptance and commitment therapy, one of the key tasks you do with adults in acceptance and commitment therapy is diffusion. As you would know well, diffusion is um, when someone feels like they're stuck to their thoughts and we want to create a separation. Well, diffusion alone is not enough when a young person is still learning how to think or learning what thinking means or learning this amazing ability that they have. So, so instead of um, just thinking about diffusion, we think about teaching them how to use language and teaching them how to use rules and problem solving and evaluation and judgments and beliefs. So we make a, take a much broader approach in thinking and emotions. We do the same thing, but thinking is a good example. Yeah. Well, and I actually thought we might walk through your model a little bit, if that's okay with you. Would you be willing to do that? Of course. I'll just have to make sure I give you a break to talk. Otherwise, I'll just be on my soapbox. <laughs> hey, this is, I'm just here to guide you. You're the you're the expert on this. So, so again, just to kind of orient people, this is the DNA V model. And um, the acronym itself, DNA, reminds us of that kind of evolutionary piece that this is, you know, there's some biological, we're humans, we have to kind of look at the context in which we are. Am I getting that right? Louise? You are right. You are right. Um, well, the, the letters were there first and then we just suddenly realised one day that the letters came um, of each. So let me say, there are four four uh, processes that we um, have um, talk about in the model and um, they have the letters D, N, A and V and they're discoverer, noticer, advisor and value. And Joe and I were two years into writing this book, which took us four years, I think we were two years in when we realised the letters stood for DNA. And we oh, went, wow, okay. that's a happy coincidence <laughs> there. Yeah. It came, it came after um, and we shook up the letters a few different ways and all the other acronyms didn't, didn't make any sense anyway. But um, we quickly realised that there was a nice little metaphor we could think about and that is these behaviours that humans have, discover, notice and give themselves advice, um, DNA covered all of the classes of behaviour that humans can do. So we could say, okay, well, and that's the way that we talk to young people. I say to a young person, you have DNA in your cells, in your body, and everybody has DNA. And there are also, DNA also stands for the ways in which you can think, move and act in the world. Um, And so we're going to learn about how you can discover things how you can notice things and how you can give yourself advice and how you use all of those for connect to help make your life what you want to be, to have vitality and value. Yeah, and to me that it, people can look online to see and in your book to see a picture of what the model looks like. So we'll link to your books on our show notes and also to your webpage because it's a nice visual. And right there in the center of it is the V, which stands for values and vitality. Yeah, Let's start there, Louise. Let's kind of unpack it a little bit. Um, So that's really the core. Why is it so important? And how can we, adults, whether we're parents or clinicians, how can we help them get there? So we know that this is a key developmental piece. Um, Say more. Say more. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> firstly, let me add that we, Joe and I, have a new book that um, will be out. I think next. I think later this year, um, and it's for teenagers using this model for teenagers to be able to read or for parents to be able to read. So let me just add that bit. Oh, great! Um, <clears throat> let us know when it comes out. I will. Um, so, in the centre of our work, and in the centre of us, we talk about value and vitality. So. Um, that's another change I didn't mention earlier. So with adults, we often just talk about value and value is often defined in the ACT model as a pattern of behaviour, something that you do that is feels um, reinforcing or feels rewarding to you um, and appetitive, if you like, something that you do that um, gives your life meaning. 
with the young people, we talk about value and vitality. So vitality is this sense of energy, this sense of enthusiasm, um, this uh, feeling that what you're doing is um, gives you life. And we link vitality and value together because value is in some ways the more, um, I don't want to say advanced, but it's the more uh, verbally um, sophisticated way of thinking about what gives your life meaning. Um, vitality is the, is the more sense of energy and enthusiasm. And so we want to go for vitality initially and then build values through the work that we do to help people know this is the kind of person I want to be. This is what I care about. Um, and, and the reason we do that, Debbie, is I don't sit across from a 12-year-old and ask them what gives your life meaning. <laughs> I ask them what do you love, what do you care about, what do you love, um, and we go from there and we build up as we go. So that's the centre of the work. Um, and there's a really important piece in here is it's in the centre because we we don't want to um, think like an adult and say that everything a young person does has to be um, helping them to head in a direction of values. So it's not kind of a directional thing. Um, that we want you to always be thinking about, is this meaningful to you? Do you care about this? Are you heading towards your value? Um, we don't use that language. We just want to know that are you using your discoverer, noticer and advisor in ways that help you build vitality or value? But it doesn't necessarily have to be a coercive. We really watch that coercive piece yeah. of is this, are you moving <laughs> towards things you care about? Yeah, and I mean, I think during especially later adolescence, they're making some key decisions that are going to set them in a certain direction. And sometimes, again, out of the fear as a parent that we might have, we would want to maybe tell them which direction to go or make sure that they're all set up to go a really good direction for their future. And we can get in that trap. But this is really different. I think what you're saying is helping them contact that so that it's they're sort of discovering that for themselves and coming more from a place of intrinsic value. Is that right? Exactly. Um, it really, if we, when we, we know very well as, as um, parents, you, you'll often get the opposite effect. If you push a young person towards um, value, uh, towards what is this going to be meaningful for your life in the future, you'll often get counterpoints. You'll get the opposite um, and we know we know that that's what happens. I mean, and it becomes coercive. It's it becomes an adult way of uh, like I'm not going to do what my mum wants when I'm 14. Um, so we step aside from that, and we say the same to teachers. We do this work in schools, and we say the same to teachers too. That we really want to step aside from this way of saying that you have to do this because it's going to be meaningful for your future. And we really want to ground it very much in. Um, what adolescents say and one of the things I love about adolescents when you start working on vitality and and starting to create value is that sense of passion you remember that sense of passion you had when you were a teenager yeah Yeah. it's you don't feel it much as an adult if ever the same at the same level yeah well I mean that sense of passion is really incredible and we need to think about what that means and work with young people on that it's very easy to dismiss it as an adult because we get, uh, can I say jaded? We go, oh, yeah. yes, that's been tried before. Cynical, right. <laughs> you know, everything's a little stale, I think, compared to that age. Yeah, it's a different, it has a different yeah. feel to it. But, it. but if you look across history and some of the things we're seeing in, in our um, history that's being made right now, adolescents are driving change and they need to. That's their role. Their role is to say, hey, we don't like the world the way it is. We want it to be different. Our job as adults is not to dismiss that, right? but to take it seriously. To harness it, yeah. They haven't given yeah. up yet. <laughs> I'm not saying we have to agree with it, but we have to take seriously that adolescents have a voice and that they can see things in a way that we've become blind to. That's lovely, lovely. Yeah. So that's value and vitality is a fun Value part. and vitality. Let's move to the A, the advisor, because I think that's another really important one that we want to harness for good, right? So <laughs> the advisor and how can we help 
um, kind of harness the good aspects of the advisor, the helpful, okay. I should say helpful, not good, the helpful aspects of the advisor. Helpful, yeah. Well, the advisor is really just a word that we use to describe um, the behaviour that's, um, it's kind of hard to say in a, in a easy to catch phrase, but the advisor is something that we use to save us from trial and error. So to a teenager, I would say the advisor is another word we use for how you think and talk to yourself. But more technically, um, for professionals that are listening, it's actually the behaviour, the verbal behaviour of saving ourselves from trial and error. The discoverer is trial and error. We'll get to that in a minute. But so with um, giving ourselves advice and talking to ourselves, what we know is that we can think about what we need to do today. And so when you woke up this morning, Debbie, and you opened your eyes, who was talking to you this morning? My my internal <laughs> chatter box listing off my to-do list as usual. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what we call your advisor. So just your ability to talk to yourself, to say, I should do this or I shouldn't do that or do I look okay in this or did I say the right thing to my friend yesterday? We just call that giving yourself advice. Um, and it, and it, technically it, it covers the behaviours of beliefs, rules, judgments, problem-solving, evaluations, all of those things. And we want to help people do that, young people do that in a way that's flexible or to make some better sense to young people. We talk about trying to decide whether the advice you're giving yourself is helpful or unhelpful. Now, it's tricky to know whether it's helpful or unhelpful because it can't be done by just the words in themselves. So let's say um, I'm a loser and I'm going to fail my maths test. We can't automatically decide that that's unhelpful negative advice because for some people, saying to myself, I'm a loser and I'm going to fail my maths test might actually help me study hard. But to someone else to say, I'm a loser and I'm going to fail my maths test might actually stop them from studying. So we only can only ever decide helpful or unhelpful based on an individual and how those that kind of thinking and self-talk works for you. And that means does it help you um, do the things you care about? That's right. How's it working in your life as opposed to just assuming it has nothing to offer? Yeah. In some cases yeah. it can actually be helpful. We It's the wisdom to know the difference there, right? Yes, and exactly. To know which advisor which advice from the advisor is worth listening to and which isn't. Yeah, and if you think about children, what I love about the advisor is when you start talking about small children and how this happens developmentally, when you have little babies, the parent is the one who has all of the verbal behaviour. Like the parent is the advisor. The parent says, you need to do this, you need to do that. And you can see the birth of um, what we call the advisor in little toddlers. You know, when you have a 15-month-old or an 18-month-old toddler and you say, get mummy the remote, and off they go and they get you the remote control of the television and come back really happy that they can follow your instructions. But then how long does it take before you say, get mummy the remote? And they say, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's them developing the ability to decide what and to use their own internal advisor to decide what they want to do and what they don't want to do. And it's all practice. So you can see that along the way from toddler years up through the um, primary school and then into adolescence. There's a growing ability to, to navigate your life with language or thinking or words or whatever you want to use that description. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and you can see over time more and more of that. And what a skill to learn. I mean, I wish I would have learned that when I was that age. I didn't learn it until much later, honestly, that just the ability to, to be aware of that and to choose. Well, here, I, I agree with you, Debbie. I wish I could. We all wish we could go back and, <laughs> and, and be a teenager. And yeah. Know the things we know now. Um, but <laughs> That is an important piece. We um, often talk about helping children learn this at a young age. So many teenagers I work with who come to see me are stuck in their thoughts. Um, And the reason that they're stuck is Owen has told them that thoughts are not rules and orders that must be obeyed. That thinking can be flexible. That you can um, play with thoughts and change thoughts and use them if they're useful and not use them if they're not useful. 
Um, and it's it's kind of a whole piece that somewhere along the way we've lost the ability to help children and adolescents know that. Mm-hmm. And so when they think something, and the ones that are really struggling when they think something, they feel like that's true and not just a, a phenomena that's happening inside us. Well, and that's a perfect segue to talk about the N in DNAV, which is the noticer, because in order to do that in the first place, we have to have some awareness of what's happening. So how is the noticer different from the advisor and what role does the noticer in your model play? Okay, so the noticer is actually my one of the places I work a lot with young people because when you're a teenager, your emotions are really changing a lot. And there's a lot of volatility in your emotions. So the noticer is, it's the, it's the behavior of noticing what goes on inside you and what goes on outside you and then choosing how to respond to that. So, um, Debbie, from, uh, the minute we're born, we're able to notice right? a, a baby of just 42 minutes, a, being born just 42 minutes old can start to notice an adult's facial expression and mimic them. So we notice from the moment we're born. Um, So it's being aware of all of the things that go on inside us, being aware of our bodies and how we we are using our bodies and also being aware of the things that are going on around us. What do we see and what do we hear? And so it's not just feelings. It's actually the the, uh, sense of being in the world. And what we want to do is help young people know that they can choose how they respond to that. So if they're angry, they don't need to lash out. They can practice different things to do. That's a hard task in adolescence when your emotions are up and down all over the place. And, in fact, that's one of the important developmental pieces. How do I learn to be angry without lashing out? How do I be afraid? Those things. And that's the flexibility piece, right, is the... Here comes the here come these big emotions, here come these thoughts, and how do I act effectively in the world? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and uh, I work with lots of young people who are really struggling with their bodies and being aware of the sensations in their bodies. And they're afraid of what's going on inside them. And they cut it or burn it or hurt it as if they're trying to shut their body and make it go off. And that, um, that that's a tough place for a young person to be. And I, I think as parents, our, our job as parents is to work when they're very young and help them be able to be okay with their bodies. The set, when I say their bodies, I mean the sensations of feelings and, um, you know, that sinking feeling in your gut that something's happening, to learn how, how to do something with that. And then through the teenage years to help them build on that as well. Yeah, we're talking here about really mindfulness skills and observing your experience. And I know that's a great passion to you in your personal life too, with your trekking mindfulness trips. So it's really cool to think about how to apply it to, uh, you know, young, working with young people. And I can see it with my kids. There are times when they're able to, to take a mindful stance toward their emotions, their thoughts, their bodies. Um, just a little bit here and there and, and to build that skill over time is really helpful. I think you're right, Debbie. It needs to be a little bit. Almost every teenager that comes to see me for therapy in the clinic, they'll sit down and say, don't make me do that mindfulness thing. <laughs> <laughs> because we've all grabbed on to this little meditation thing. And I love meditation and it's a useful and it can be helpful. But we've all grabbed onto this meditation thing and by the time a teenager comes to see me for therapy, everybody has told them to do it and they just say, I'm not doing that. Um, but so, so we talk about being a noticer, which can include mindfulness, but we sneak it in, um, <laughs> is that um, being a noticer, being a flexible noticer, is being able to be aware and notice what goes on inside you, you know, and to choose how you respond. And that's the essence of flexibility. And you can play, um, you, you can go and play basketball and do that mindfully. You can listen to, to I often ask them to listen to ACDC because I'm Australian. You can listen to ACDC and do that mindfully. You know, you're just noticing the beats and noticing the music and you can be in anything and be present with it. Yeah. 
So we approach it in that way. And for some people, it's okay to do meditation, but if they don't like it, there are many, many other options. Right, more like awareness in, in, in their life as it's unfolding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And flexibility is choosing your response. Well, and instead, and, of, instead of reacting. Instead, yeah, re- responding instead of reacting and choosing, choosing wisely, hopefully, most of the time, yeah. at least. Yeah. Um, and let's face it, we don't all choose our response to our inner sensations wisely <laughs> at any age. <laughs> True enough. <laughs> I think that is probably the rare person who does all the time. Maybe no one. <laughs> well, and that, that idea of choosing and how we're engaging with the world leads us to the, the D in the DNA yeah. model, which is Maybe my favorite. I don't know. Can't have a favorite because they all go together. But I, I just well, love it's my favorite. So we can it's have your a favorite. favorite oh, cool. Yeah. We're allowed to have a favorite. <laughs> well, I love that it just really, you know, toys around with this idea of being out there in the world, trying things out. Tell us about the discoverer and what what that's about, and and how to work with the discoverer from your model. Okay. Well, the discoverer is my favorite too, um, and it's a it's a key developmental piece. It's something that you don't often see in adult act. And it was a, a part of the model that we thought hard about. I think it should be an adult act, I might add. <laughs> um, we kind of talk about committed action in adult acceptance and commitment therapy, but it's not quite the discoverer. So you remember I said the advisor saves us from trial and error. Well, the discoverer is trial and error. So let me explain in an example. Um, when a, a, an infant is one year, one year old and they start to try to learn how to walk, they stand up and they fall down and they stand up and they fall down and they stand up and they fall down, right? That's being a discoverer, okay? That's trial and error. They'll keep standing up and falling down until they learn how to walk. Now, the advisor is, saves you from trial and error. And many adults, if I said to you, Debbie, I'm going to teach you this new thing where you're going to make a lot of mistakes. You know, sometimes I say, maybe I'm going to teach you how to do something we call swooshing. How do you feel about learning how to swoosh, Debbie? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What is it? (laughs) Right. There's your advisor, all right? So um, the advisor saves you from trial and error. So if I said I was going to teach you something, you're probably going to investigate it. You're going to look at it. You're going to find out about it. You're going to learn about it so that when you have to do it, you don't look foolish. And so when go back to our one-year-old who's learning how to walk, stand up, fall down, stand up, fall down. Young, That's the discoverer piece. And a young person's, an infant's advisor doesn't come in and say, well, don't do that walking thing, it's too hard, which is what we would tell ourselves as adults. They keep trying. So that's in childhood. It's, uh, it's the essence of play. You know, play is being a discoverer. Play is full of fear and surprise and unexpected things. So in children, it's play. That's a very key developmental piece. And then in the teenage years, the discoverer is all about the um, trial and error, trying things and learning what works and learning what what doesn't work. And that's the key part of the risk-taking and sensation-seeking is going and trying things. We all remember from our teenage years and we see with teenagers that, you know, one one time you're going to be someone who has this kind of look with dyed hair and then the next time you're going to be a person who has this kind of look. That's all the trial and error things. And so the reason I love the Discoverer so much, it's working on uh, helping a young person understand their behaviour and how they have agency in the world. They can do things. They can make things happen. They can push and pull and poke and make things happen. And when they make things happen, they get to choose whether that's something they want to continue to do. And over time, we will build their strengths and their ability to act in the world. And that will eventually become what they care about and what we call value. So discoverer is a way of kind of finding out, well, what do I value? What what does bring me vitality? But you don't know until you've tried it. So it's built, so it's kind of not really committed action if you're thinking about adult acceptance and commitment therapy. It's partly committed action, but it's also this developmental piece of um, trying something to find out, to take risks and to see what it's about. Well, and I like that it allows for some mistakes. 
and some risks that won't necessarily get the person where they want to go. Because if we don't have the freedom to do that, we get really constrained and our, you know, our choices are very limited. And I think to almost have permission to, not that adolescents really need our permission to go out and do these things, but, but, but to sort of approach it from the sense of this is you trying things in the world. Yeah, how, exactly. You don't know where you want to go until you've tried some things. And that's what that's exactly what it's all about. And the funny thing is, Debbie, let me just tell you, I work on the Discoverer with um, adults too. <laughs> so when I see, I see adults in therapy as well, and when I work with them, I work on the Discoverer piece as well. And lately I've been working with some people around middle age who have lost the ability to discover, and we talk about that a lot. And I send them off to take risks and to find new passions that they've never had before. And let me just tell you, I'll give myself a little plug here. My discoverer piece, which you mentioned before, is um, deciding that I would uh, run some treks in Nepal and take some health professionals to Nepal. And it was terrifying when I first decided to do that. It was after the earthquakes in Nepal and it was uh, because we wanted to help people who were disadvantaged. And I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And over the course of a couple of years, it's become the thing that gives me the most joy. And so part of being a discoverer is to just try things. I could equally tell you things that I've tried that have failed miserably (laughs) (laughs) and made my life very painful. But um, it's all part of finding out and having this one life that we have. Right. I think so many things that do have that vitality to it also have that fear and we have to take start dipping a toe out of the comfort zone. And I think you're right that a lot of adults have forgotten how to do that. That's a model that isn't just unique to adolescents. And and maybe we don't think to do it with adults because, you know, they're going about their lives and things seem okay. But then you wonder what are they missing out on that maybe is a possibility. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, there's there's some hard science behind here. This The discoverer really came out from our work looking at evolutionary science and what humans need to do as they grow and develop. And, and that's why I mentioned before the discoverer piece and play. If you think about what a child is doing, when children are playing, it, in my opinion, it's not about value. It's about being the discoverer. It's about trial and error. Like what do I do when I... Um, punch my friend what happens you know what happens when I lose a game and I turn the game upside down or what happens when I climb this tree it's all about trial and error and play in children you see is often about uh, taking risks and trying how to manipulate the physical world like can I climb the tree can I play on the playground and also how to model and manipulate the social world how do I be friends how far can I What can I say to another person? So this play in children is the discoverer piece. It's all about trying and making mistakes and learning the physical world and the social world. And when you're an adolescent, the discoverer piece is all about practising for that job you'll have one day, which is to be an adult. Now, I dearly hope that we can eventually help adults be discoverers so that they can continue to practise adulting (coughs) and to trial and error and make mistakes and find passions they have lost. Well, I'm going to keep that in mind going forward. I think always keeping that idea of the discoverer in your mind as you go through life will really add vitality for everyone at any age. I think it does. I think it does. <laughs> and I've had some really fun, fun conversations with adults in therapy about how you could be a discoverer. I love it. Well, I will um, refer people to your books and your website who want to learn more and delve deeper into these ideas because I've been reading The Thriving Adolescent and it goes beyond what we've talked about today. And it also integrates positive psychology and it really goes through some of the concerns that are common in adolescence in a bit more detail, things like groups, peer groups, you know, more about risk-taking and that kind of thing. So I, I hope we've whetted some appetites for some some folks. The book is really geared, I think, toward clinicians, teachers, um, people working with adolescents. Is that right? Yes, yeah. it is. The book, the book is a professional book that's geared towards that. But the website has information in there that parents um, could look at. 
there's some anima- animations and um, things that are easily accessed in the website that parents or um, teenagers could look at. Um, and in about a year, in about a year, we'll have a teenage book. So watch this space. And on our website, thrivingadolescent.com, there is a place to sign up. So if you sign up, you'll get the free resources. Um, Joseph Cherokee and I have made a commitment to provide as many free resources as we can. So when we develop something, we put it on the website. And when our colleagues across the world develop something, we put it on the website. So It's a great resource. I was looking at it before I before we talked and I found all kinds of great things in there. So I'd encourage people to check it out. Yeah, it's a bit of a treasure trove. It's hard to really know what's there. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. There's a lot. And we will look forward to your book when it comes out. So maybe we'll have you back on and um, we'll also, you know, keep people posted on on the book because I'm really looking forward to taking a look at it. Well, thanks for having me, Debbie. Thank you so much again for coming on to the podcast and more importantly for the wonderful work that you're doing. I think it helps a lot of people and I hope our conversation today, people will find it helpful as well. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are having a mental health emergency, please dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources on our webpage. Our website is www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's www.offtheclockpsych.com. Www.offtheclockpsych.com.